Thank you all for sharing. It's such a blessing for all of us here to get to praise God with you. And Gina, I thought your praise was a perfect setup for this talk. The grief you felt for those people is the grief Paul was feeling for the people of Galatia. So we can sort of connect. You were a a wonderful introduction. Um, I want to say real briefly, if you noticed your holes are punched on your verse sheet on the wrong side, that was intentional. Someone came to Ellen and I with this wonderful idea of if you punched them on the other side, we could lay them out in our notebook. Our outline on one side, our verses on the other. So I'm just letting you know that was the thought. We'll take a vote next week, see if you like that. I wonder how many of you wouldn't be here today if someone hadn't come alongside your life and cared about where you were spiritually. If someone cared and inspired you to grow, a youth group, a a group leader, a Bible study leader, a parent, a spouse, a neighbor, someone that took seriously God's calling that we are to be his ambassadors and we are called to mentor the less mature. And I had a struggle with that title, but here's what I was thinking about it. It doesn't mean that any of us ever make it, because we will always be maturing in Christ until we get to be with him. And it doesn't mean some of us have arrived, because we will always have someone who knows Christ in a deeper way than we do, and there'll always be someone in our life who is just new at walking with Christ. So throughout our whole life, we will be both a mentor and a mentee. I want us today to be encouraged to look around and say, who am I a mentor for? Who does God have in my life? Not only formally, you may be a small group leader, there's a kind of formal mentoring, but if you have children, if you have friends, if you have other people at work, who is it that looks at you as a mentor in their life? I often get to talk about the important role that Young Life played in my life. I grew up in a wonderful home, but it was not a Christian home. And so Young Life was the only spiritual connection that I had in my life. And I came to Christ through that ministry. I was discipled through that ministry. I was loved through that ministry. And about a year and a half ago... I gathered with eight of my best Young Life friends from high school, and we went back to my little suburb called South Holland, and we went back to San Frantello's Pizza Place, our hangout, and had pizza together. And that was a weird thing, to be eating pizza and looking across the table. You don't look 16 anymore. How fun it was. Guess who was sitting at the end of the table just glowing? Wayne, my young life leader. There we were, all these people that he could think, my efforts were not wasted. We were all still walking with Christ. I thought about all the times he taught us the Bible in his home, the football games that he came to, the pizza at San Frantello's, the campouts, the ski trips, the weekend trips, the everything that he did with us. And we closed the night by all getting in our cars and going back to his house, and his wife Nancy was there, and she had made a pie, 
That was something Nancy did for us almost every time we were in her house. And she used to make this one pie. It was custard and raisins. And for some reason, it was called the impossible pie. So if you remember that song, To Dream the Impossible Dream, we used to stand around the kitchen table to eat the impossible pie. So we sang that again in the kitchen. And we were all about to run out the door, and Wayne said, Stop, let me pray for you. Just like how many years ago? Many, many years ago. And we all stopped at the door, and Wayne prayed for us. He is still my mentor, even though he doesn't live anywhere near me. And that was an exciting thing. But you know what I realized for the first time when I was there a year and a half ago? I always thought Nancy was nice. But I realized Nancy was a mentor in my life as well. She had six kids. She wasn't running a Young Life Club. But she let us hang out at her house. She was demonstrating hospitality. She was cooking for us. She was loving us. She was kind and patient with us. We tore her house up. She didn't care. She was also an example of a mentor. She demonstrated us what it would be like one day to be a godly wife and a godly mother. We don't run Young Life Clubs in this room. Some of you may be involved in it, but we're not running Bible studies maybe, and we're not running this. We're running carpools and soccer games, and we're running to work and gym and clubs and all our other volunteer things. And so when in the world do we decide we're going to mentor the less mature? How in the world do we have the time to do that? We can't be missionaries to the Lost Galatians uh, like Paul was. But when I read chapter 4, I realized he gives us some wonderful principles of how we can stop, take note, and do what God's called us to do. Mentor the people in our lives that don't know Christ quite as well and haven't been walking with him as long as as we have. So here's the two things on your outline. I discovered what a mentor is. We are a mentor when we care about the spiritual health of the people that God has placed in our life, be it our child, our neighbor, our co-worker. We care. And we are also a mentor when we become spiritually intentional with the people God has placed in our life. And I know this will work its way out in many different ways for many different people, just like Wayne and Nancy worked out in, in my life. But I want to look at these characteristics that I think we can place into our lives so that one day, way out there in the future, someone will say in a Bible study, was there anyone that cared about your spiritual life? And your face will come to their mind. What a wonderful privilege. The first thing we realize is a spiritual mentor exhibits the compassion of Christ. It's not about imparting knowledge and wisdom and direction. A mentor is always first about demonstrating what the love of Jesus looks like. Can you imagine if Paul had come to the Galatians and just given his info and took off, or given his info and stood back? It wouldn't have lasted. Paul came to them in the love of Jesus, and therefore the message was embraced because he came to them as someone who loved them. Look at 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. 
If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Look at how Paul behaved when he was around all his churches. Look at the next verse, Thessalonians. Paul says, We were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become very dear to us. In chapter 4, we can tell Paul loved the Galatians. Even though he's very perplexed by them, he loves them. Do you remember when people use the term backsliding? I don't know, do people still say that? When I was in college, everybody was a backslider. So you'd be at some Bible study and say, hey, where's Jane? She's backsliding. <laughs> that was just a normal thing that we'd say. It's easy to define that in people's lives. Oh, they're, they're backsliding. It's much harder to care about that. It's much harder to get involved with the backslider's life and decide you want to make a difference in their life. That takes love. This is what Paul is doing with the Galatians. Look on your verse sheet at Ephesians 4. We must no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. We should assume that people grow and change once they know Christ, but we should not assume that they get there on their own. This verse tells us we have a calling. We have a part to play in that. In fact, we are supporting ligaments. Never thought of myself that way, but that's what we are, supporting ligaments. And it also says in that verse that we must speak truth in love. And that means actually translated truthing in love. So it's not only about what we say, it's about how we behave, speaking and acting in love. Sometimes speaking the truth in love means we're rescuing someone who has new life in Christ, but is turning away, doing that backsliding thing, and walking back towards the very slavery and darkness Christ had taken them out of. It's loving to rescue someone who's walking down that path and pointing them back into the right direction. Sort of like Dr. Phil. How's that working for you? We remind them, how did that work for you? We remind them it didn't. And we can't force them to turn back around, but we can care about it. We can get involved in their life. I I, uh, found a newspaper article this week that maybe some of you saw Sunday, a wonderful couple in our church that had um, gone through a hard time. They were in the I do section in the wedding. And uh, Ted had met them, and they're a wonderful couple. I was going to bring the article. I forgot it. But basically... They had really had a hard marriage and had divorced and didn't want to have anything to do with each other. And 
it was so neat to see that the woman began to pray, God, send some good people in my husband's life. And God began to answer, and her husband tells in this story, he began to attend a Bible study. With who? His, his friends. Men he knew. Men that thought, let's help bring him from here to here. And long story short, when this couple, who couldn't stand the sight of each other, saw each other again, they burst out crying because they were not the same people. God had used people in his life to bring him to know Christ, and she had come to know things as well. And so, a year later, they got married again. Now they have a little girl, and they go here, and they were in the paper. (laughs) Pretty exciting. I thought to myself... How important were people in their life to remove them from a bad place to point out, you've been taken out of that darkness. Let's go forward. Let's see how Paul does that. Look at Galatians 4, verse 8. Paul says, Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it you're turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Here's the first thing Paul does. Here's one of the things we do if we want to rescue some from their past. We point out the futility of their life without Christ. That's the bad news, but it has to be told. And Paul's saying in here, when you didn't know God, you were slaves to those who are not gods. If you were a Gentile, you created your own gods and you served them. If you were a Jew, you had idols as well, your works, your legalism. Anything that takes the place of God is an idol. Martin Luther says this about this passage. Whoever is fallen from the article of justification is ignorant of God and is an idolater. It's all one thing, whether he turns again to the law or to the worshiping of idols. For when justification by faith is taken away, there is nothing but error, idolatry, impiety, and even though an outward appearance, it seems to be very true. Our past seemed to be true service to God. It seemed to be true holiness. It wasn't. In fact, part of their past, Paul says in these verses, was dealing with weak and miserable principles. The law was weak because it could point at sin, it could define sin, but it wasn't strong enough to take you out of sin. And it was miserable, that word's translated poverty-stricken. Why? When you compare it to the inheritance of grace, it was poverty-stricken. And then Paul says, part of your past involves keeping ceremonies and rituals in order to attain your righteousness for the Jews. Did you notice how Paul gives that list? You observe days and weeks and months and seasons and years. I think he did that in order to make them realize the monotony, the heaviness, the burden of what you guys do. The days would be every Sabbath, the months, the new moons. The seasons, Passover, Pentecost, Feast of the Tabernacles, the years, the sabbatic years, every seven years being a special year of healing and restoration. So what's wrong with that? 
What's wrong is they were dividing their life between the sacred and the secular. These days belong to God. These days belong to us. As long as we do these things, we'll be okay here. But here, I do what I want to do. What a grief for Paul to look at these people's lives and say, you have known the splendors of grace. Do not go back and become that kind of a man or woman who would turn to legalism. You who lived in the continual presence of God, why do you want to shut your time up with God into certain times and days and principles? He says to them, you are, you are chained to everything that's nothing. And this is, unfortunately, where a lot of mentors stop. It's kind of easy to point out what everybody's doing wrong. And sometimes as parents, this is a huge temptation. But a spiritual mentor would say, okay, I've told you the bad news. Now I'm going to tell you the good news. We point out the inheritance that they receive in Christ. That's the good news. Look at verse 7. He says, so you are not a slave any longer, but a son. And since you are a son... God has made you also an heir. He's saying, there was the meaningless of the past, but here is the meaning of your future. From futility to purpose, from bondage to freedom, from a slave to a son. Look at 1 Peter 2. On your verse sheet, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people. Now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Look back at verse 9 with me. He says, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God, and I wanted to talk about that. It's true, none of us in this room came to God without God revealing himself to you. So in that sense, it is true we are more known by God than us knowing God. But I think in this verse, Paul is saying, have you guys come to the place where you don't even know God? Even so, God still knows you. Not that they lost their salvation, but they lost their understanding of God and his relationship with them through grace. In this next verses, we see his love in a different way. In order to mentor the less mature, on your outline, we love them enough to remain committed even when it's hard. Look at verse 11. I fear for you. Somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you. Become like me. I became like you. You've done me no wrong. As you know, it's because of an illness I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial, you didn't treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What's happened to that joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? This is the portrait of a man in love, in love to the point of pain. And we see it not just by 
what he does with his mouth, we see that he has rolled up his sleeves and he has worked among the Galatians to show them his love. And this is no easy ministry, especially when you realize he was ill. Verse 11 could actually be translated, I read in another Bible, I have labored to the point of exhaustion. So Paul pleads with them, become like me, remember? I became like a Gentile. I set aside my privileges as a Jew. I set aside my prejudices to eat with you, to come in your home, to fellowship with you. Remember that? You are my family. And he says, every step that you take toward legalism is a step you're taking away from me. Return to me. Remember how we were so endeared to each other? Paul came to the Galatians as an ill man. Now, there's a couple of thoughts there. One, he got there, and he became ill, and he just kept going. Two, he might have been traveling through Pamphylia. We see that in the book of Acts. And that area was wet and humid and marshy, and lots of people got malaria. So possibly that was something that happened to Paul. Lots of people speculate about that. If that had been the case, he would have gone to higher, drier ground. He would have found himself in Galatia. And did he just lie there and rest? No. He thought, i got to tell these people the truth about Jesus Christ. And so even though he was ill, he went out and preached. And it says in this verse that his condition was a trial to them. That means it was a little bit um, revolting to be around him. You know, we have such great medical care today, like what Gina did in India, which she probably saw. They didn't have this back then. So when people looked sick, they looked sick, and they smelled sick. And this is how Paul spoke before the Galatians. And, you know, also back then, to most people, if you were sick, it meant that God was divinely judging you. Paul had a lot of things going against him. It wasn't easy. He kept going. And he says in these verses, you embraced me. Even with these things in my life, you still embraced me. Because you thought I was God's messenger. When you heard the truth... You were excited. You welcomed me like an angel or like Jesus himself. Remember when he came to Antioch? It says that he only spoke there twice, and they began glorifying God because of the word that they heard. When it says they would have plucked their eyes out for Paul, this could mean two things. One, that was an expression that someone was saying, I would do anything for you. Secondly, If he did have malaria, he would have had eye problems. Malaria attacks the eyes. And maybe they were saying, if we could exchange our eyes with yours, we would do that. That's how much they love him. I think Paul's thinking back, remember, I planted these churches, Paul and Barnabas, and then we came back. We came back through, and I think that was probably his richest fellowship of all. Going from church to church, fellowship, loving, getting to know these people. What has happened in the years since Paul left? Those party poopers, the Judaizers, had come. They were undermining Paul's authority everywhere that he went. I think they trailed him. 
I think they followed him, trying to undermine who he was. And so these Galatians were guilty of spiritual defection because they were believing the lies of these legalists. And as their defection went along with them, so did their devotion to Paul defect. The easiest way for Paul to get close again to the Galatians would have been to agree with what they were thinking, to join in with the Judaizers. But we know from our other lessons, Paul was not a people pleaser, and Paul was committed to the truth. And so Paul takes a really hard road by saying, I'm not going to stop telling you the truth. That's how much I love you. Even in the face of rejection, I'm going to keep telling you the truth. That's what a mentor does. Sometimes we're rejected. We never compromise the truth to keep somebody happy. But we also never set aside our affection. It made me remember about Ted and I worked with Young Life for a few years. And we had to do contact work. And I hated it. Because we would go to the schools at lunchtime. Now the games and all that, that was fine. But you were supposed to go into the schools at lunch and just walk up to a table. Hey, I'm Lynn. And they'd look at you like, get a life. <laughs> what, what do you do for a living? And you try to sit down and say, well, I just want to hang out with you guys. And they'd roll their eyes. I remember one time Ted went up to a table and they all purposely, he said, tell me all your names. And they all said a wrong name just to be mean to him. So he saw him in the halls later and he'd say, hey, Joe. And they all go, <laughs> It took him months to figure that one out. <laughs> and I remember going to the Young Life Women's Leader in Fort Worth and saying, I, I don't think I can do it anymore. And she didn't spend a lot of time with me, but she was a spiritual mentor in my life. And she encouraged me and she said, you can do it. Just go back. Look for the couple of people that like you. Go sit with them. So that's what I started to do. I think when... We continue to reach out in the face of rejection. There is no time in our life we are more demonstrating who Jesus Christ is. Isaiah 53 says, He was despised, he was rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. On your outline, we set aside our pride in the face of rejection. If Paul was prideful, at this point, he would have walked away. Why didn't he do it? A spiritual mentor keeps on persevering, and they have one reason and one reason only. Look at verse 19. My dear children, for whom I again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. A spiritual mentor maintains one motivation on our outline. Our hope for others is that they would reflect the image of Christ. Romans 12.2 tells us, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is what we want for the people God's placed in our life. 
Look at Romans 8. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. This is not the motivation of the false teachers. And that's another way we know they're false. Look at verse 17. Paul says, those other people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, and not just when I'm with you. It's interesting in this verse to see the great difference between Paul's motivation and theirs. He's zealous, they're zealous, the Judaizers for these Galatians, for themselves. They want to shut up, or they want to lack out. Paul and truth from the Galatians' life. So they would be zealous for the Judaizers and not for God. And so I put on our outline, a mentoring relationship isn't about us controlling them, but God controlling them. We had a dentist where I grew up who started a church, and it was so interesting because he had the biggest, greatest personality and his wife did, and they started this small church, and then they decided to come into the church that I was attending as a teenager, and they kind of wrecked that church because they tried to take it over and get everybody to come to their church. And then they started their church, and as I would meet young women in town and that were going to their church, I realized he wanted them in his church so he could control them. Not so he could place them into the arms of God. He told everybody who to date, who to marry, where to go, where to eat, what to eat, what to wear. That's not a spiritual mentor. There is no greater joy for a spiritual mentor than to see that they can direct these people in their life into the arms of God. That's what it's about. And a spiritual mentor has a plan for growth. Paul is not trying hit-and-miss tactics with the Galatians. I think he's strategic in everything he does. And again, that's a reminder for us. We don't want to think later in our life, you know, my neighbor, she came over a lot. I really could have told her something about God. Or my kids now are 18 and leaving the house. Remember, I was going to talk to them about the Bible and these verses. Have a plan, and God will use you. Get a plan now. I uh, went to Pine Cove, actually with Julie, quite a few years ago, and there was a woman there who was really a wonderful teacher, but she had a wayward son, and he was probably in his early 20s or late teens. And I thought she was so unique. Her son was kind of wayward. He wasn't pursuing God And so she made a strategic plan. This woman said, every night that he went out, I thought about what his favorite pie was or his favorite cakes, and I baked them. She said, I gained a lot of weight. (laughs) It was okay, because her goal was to form Christ in her son. And I was so impressed with that. Her husband would go to bed, the whole house would be in bed, and she would sit up however late it took till her son came home from whatever it was he was doing. And I don't think he ever caught on, because he'd just start walking through the house, and he'd go, Hey, Mom, huh? what are you doing? And she'd say, I made a cherry pie. Cherry pie? Would you like a piece? Sure. And he sat down. That was her plan. 
That was the only time she could be with him. That was the only time she could talk to him about God. That was a time she could get a little bit of a feel of the pulse of what he was thinking, where he'd been, and where he was going. And I'm sure God used that in his life. Paul says, okay, i got to be strategic here. The Galatians keep saying the Old Testament proves our point. I'm going to go back once again to the Old Testament and teach what's very interesting. Look at verse 21. He's going to show them even the law teaches that salvation doesn't come from the law. Look at verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? And so he continues here to show them the plan of redemption has always been by grace. And he uses this story. What was historically true would also be spiritually true. Verse 22. It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a promise. Your forefather, Paul said, Abraham had two sons, born in different ways. Two different mothers, one Hagar, who was a slave. Isaac was born from Abraham's wife, Sarah. Ishmael, born from Hagar, the slave. These mothers had two different positions in life, a slave and a free woman. Hagar was the Egyptian slave of Sarah. Sarah knew God's promises to Abraham, but she was getting nervous. She was getting old. She had a hard time trusting in these promises of God. So she asks Abraham to have a child through her maidservant, Hagar. So Ishmael's born before Isaac. This is the other difference. One child born according to the flesh. The selfish desires of Sarah. The lack of trust that Sarah had in her fears. The other child was the child of the promise. Isaac's conception was supernatural, and Sarah recognized that when he came. At the time, Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah, 90 years old. It was a miracle from God. The conception of Ishmael represents man's way, the way of the flesh. The conception of Isaac represents God's way, the way of his promise. The first showing religious self-effort, works righteousness. The second, faith and God's righteousness. Look at 424. These things may be taken figuratively, for the woman represents two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children are to be slaves. This is Hagar. And so here Paul uses these two mothers figuratively comparing them really to Judaism and Christianity. And this is what he says. There are two covenants. One is Mosaic. That's tied to Mount Sinai. Those under that covenant were slaves because as Hagar brought forth a slave, anyone under the covenant of the law was slaves to sin. It enslaves us. And he doesn't mention the other covenant here, but it is implied. Then you have Abraham's covenant, where God himself came to Abraham with a promise. It's a grace system. And those who come from this system in its messianic promise will be children who are free. And then Paul says there's two Jerusalems. Look at 25. 
Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she's in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. Hagar stands for the first century uh, city of Jerusalem. This was a city enslaved by the Romans and enslaved by the law of Moses. Sarah stands for the Jerusalem above. Sarah stands for the heavenly city that will one day come down to earth where Christ will reign. And the people that go to that city are free because we are children of grace. Listen to this verse in Hebrews 12. He says, You haven't come to a mountain that could be touched into a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom in a whirlwind. That's Mount Sinai. He says, You've come to Mount Zion. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what Sarah represents. And then Paul quotes Isaiah 54. Look at verse 27. Be glad, O barren woman who bears no children. Break forth and cry aloud, you who have no labor pains, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Okay, this was a prophecy Isaiah made for Israel. Now, what he was saying here was Israel's fortunes were going to change. Before Israel was captured by Babylon, they were considered um, a woman with a husband. But when the Babylonians captured them, Israel was considered a woman that was barren. This prophecy was to encourage Israel at that time and say, one day you will be back in the land and you will be fruitful again. But it's also a spiritual lesson that we can learn by looking at Sarah. She was also barren, later blessed with Isaac. And who would be her children ultimately? All of us in this room, anyone who comes to God through faith, she would be blessed beyond what she could imagine. More are the blessings of grace from one who was barren than Israel who is enslaved under the law. And now I want to end real quickly with Galatians 4.28. Paul brings it back to the Galatians. And he says, Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It's the same now. He says, You're like Isaac because you came to Christ through grace. And just like Ishmael taunted Isaac, When Isaac was weaned from Sarah, they had a big celebration, and Ishmael ran around taunting Isaac because who did Ishmael think was going to be Abraham's heir? Ishmael. So he could mock Isaac. And Paul is saying, that's exactly what the Judaizers are doing to you. They're claiming that they deserve a good place with God when in reality that is not the case. Children of grace would be heirs to the kingdom. And so they taunted that idea. And so I love that Paul did this by using this Old Testament here. On your outline, he exposes and removes the influences that have stunted the growth of the Galatians. Here's what he says in verse 30. What does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. And brothers, we aren't children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Who's Paul talking about here when he says that? 
he's looking at the Galatians and saying, expel the Judaizers. That's what he's saying. I'm exposing them to you, and I'm asking you to do what Scripture says. Get rid of the Judaizers. Never will those two things meet, observing the law and coming to be justified through faith in Christ before God. They don't meet, cast out. Cast out the Judaizers so that you can continue to grow. He tells them instead what is true. Look at verse 5-1, chapter 5-1. He reminds them, it's for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm then and don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. We strengthen our mentees with the truth. Once we expose the lies, we replace it with the truth. Look at Romans 6. Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. How great, how great that we have the opportunity to make people in our lives aware of that. How great to teach our children it was for freedom that Christ came. So you'll love and serve him in freedom. And you are not enslaved to any principle or silly ritual. You get to be with Christ through your faith. These are the basics. If we want to be a good mentor, we love others like Jesus did. We keep our motivation pure to form Christ in them. And we are intentional. We make a plan that will bring about growth in their life. And then we can say, God, thank you for letting me help build up your church. Let me pray. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. And we are overwhelmed with your goodness. We give you all praise in Jesus' name. Amen.